Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Isaiah 7, from verses 1 to 16. I read, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Sher Jashob, to meet Ahab at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the laundress field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't lose, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezim and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will too be shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether it be the deepest depth or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tedo, for doing justice to a difficult passage. Good morning, everyone. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that salvation, honor, power, glory, and honor is yours, has been yours in eternity, is yours now, and will be yours forever. And so, Lord, we ask that you grant us in these few minutes to help us 
gaze on it rightly and help us respond to it in faith and in hope. In Jesus' name we pray. So um, special welcome to those of us, those of you who are joining us um, for the first time. I know it's Christmas, some of you have traveled down, some people are visiting Lagos outside the country from different parts of the country. And so we are thankful that you've made our time to come and be with us this morning. So we're in the third, um, third and final sermon in our birth of all birth series. And for those of you who are members of City Church, it probably doesn't feel like it because last week we had a rock and roll ball um, in, in, the, in the form of our, con, of our carol. Um, and so we took a pause last week and then we're resuming this week and continuing from there. Um, so confession, two years ago, I pre-joined the Advent series called Advent in Luke. And I said that I'm a Christmas junkie. I'm a sucker for Christmas. I like listening to Christmas carols throughout the year. And so then I would have started listening from like March, um, June, go on and on and on. But two years after, I don't know what has happened. Yeah, life has happened. Um, so this year, I actually didn't listen to any Christmas song until end of November. I tried, I tried. But for someone who used to listen to Christmas carols from March, that was like, is a, is a descent from grace. Um, and so, I, I, in fact, I, I, I don't think I made it past two albums. The first one was um, Timmy Dacolo's Merry Christmas, Darling, which made me feel, you know, it's Timmy Dacolo, you love him, you don't hate his voice, he has a great voice. But then he's singing songs like um, White Christmas. And he leaves you, especially if you've experienced it before, it can, it can make you feel depressed, like, I'm going through traffic in December, and this guy is singing about white Christmas, peaceful everywhere, snow dropping. What is this? What does, what does this have to do with anything? And then I listened to another one. I was like, ah, oh, man. So I just continued listening to, to other songs. And I, and I tried reflecting on it, and I wonder. So like Lola said, I think life has happened. Um, two years ago, I was working at a job that I didn't like. Um, and wasn't as, as taxing. But now I'm working at a job that I like, and it's twice as taxing <laughs> at, at the job that I used to do. Two years ago, I was just married, about almost one year into marriage. My, it was just myself and my wife, you know, newly wedded couple things. But now I have a son <laughs> who is two years old. And you know that brings a lot of things with it. And so I guess life has happened feeling jaded, feeling discouraged. And for many of us, Christmas is like that. We come to Christmas and we feel jaded, we feel discouraged, we feel, we feel down. Because instead of it being a, a season of hope, a season of love, a season of affection, for many of us, it's a reminder of the things we once had that we no longer have. So maybe last year, or one special Christmas you remember, you were with your loved one, with your spouse, and everything was going well. Everything was rosy. But then now, today, that person is no more. Maybe they walked out on you. Maybe they left you. And now you are left with memories of times that were good. And now everything is just bad. Or maybe for some of us, Christmas is not a reminder 
of what we used to have. Christmas is a reminder of what you've never had. And so you have family and friends. People are talking about traveling to go and be with someone. Or they are thinking about plans they've made to go to the beach or a resort with their family. And here you are. Time is ticking. The clock keeps counting. And you're still hugging your pillow to sleep at night. And so we, we feel jaded. We feel discouraged. We feel hopeless at this time because promises that were made have been broken. The promises that should have been made have never been made and have never been kept. If you're like me, this morning, this passage comes to us with a word of hope. See, Isaiah is a prophet who, whose ministry lasted for about 50 plus years and he, he, he ministered under about four different kings. And his ministry was basically calling the people of Israel back to God. And in this passage, I think he's given us something very crucial for those of us whose hopes have been dashed, for those of us who have doubts, for those of us who have longings that have never been satisfied. He comes to us with a promise this morning. And so I titled this sermon, The Birth of the True Son. And we'll look at two things that I think Isaiah is really getting at here that are especially relevant and useful for us. So the first point is a visible threat. And we'll see that in verses 1 to 12. And, and the second point is a visible sign, and we'll see that in verses 14 to 16. So let's consider the first one, a visible threat. Now, I said Tedo did justice to a difficult passage because this passage is hard. And as I read over it again and again, I was like, why did I even agree? Why did I agree to preach this text? Because for us to understand it well, we won't, we, we'll have to move out of Isaiah and then consider the history of Israel a little bit. So you, please stay with me, all right? It's a, it's a history lesson this morning. So verse 1 opens by telling us about three kings. King Ahaz of Judah, King Rezin of Aram or, Same, or, or Syria, and King Pekah of Ephraim or Israel. So to help us understand what's going on, on here, let me give you a, big, a very brief survey of, of the history of Israel at this point. So we all know King David. King David was the king after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. Really, um, he, was, he was a very prosperous king, and Israel thrived, and, and Israel expanded under his rule. But he dies in 1 Kings chapter 2. And so his son Solomon takes up after him, and then Solomon comes to the throne, and Solomon is a very wise king, very prosperous. The country actually has territories that expand. And for, for, for a period during his reign, it's almost as if Israel is actually colonizing other nations because his territory expands a lot. And it's a very peaceful time. Israel is doing well. We're told, in fact, in the Bible that gold was as nothing during his days. Like you'll be walking on the street and you say, ah, that's gold there, yeah. And you, and you walk past. It was, that, it was that great. But then after him, he rules for 40 years. His son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. And Rehoboam is a very young, inexperienced, and foolish guy. <laughs> and so he takes a very bad political decision, and the country basically goes to splinters. There are 12 tribes of Israel. The 10 tribes in the, in the northern part of the kingdom form the king, king, uh, kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim, as, as is talked about here. And so 10 tribes go with another guy who is called Jeroboam, and they form another kingdom. And then two tribes remain, and then they go with the house of David and with Solomon's son, and they are called the kingdom of Judah. And so this is, this is what's happening here. 
And then as the story progresses, we see that the kings of Israel, the northern, the ten northern kingdoms, really are very bad guys. They're assassinating each other. They are coming to the throne by very devilish and devious means. But the, but the kings of Judah are a mixed bunch. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Some of them follow God. Some of them don't. Um, and Ahaz is one of the bad guys. Ahaz is one of the bad guys, and the Bible calls him a wicked king. And you can, if you want to know more about his stories, in 1 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. All right? Have I lost you yet? No. no thank you. Even if you said yes, it would be no. <laughs> um, so the story of Ahaz in 1 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 20, that Ahaz is a really wicked guy. He's such a prolific idolater, as we see in 2, Kings, um, 2 Chronicles 28, if you can put up the text. 2 Chronicles 22 to 4. It says Ahaz got to the throne when he was 20. He reigned for 16 years. And then verse 2, it says he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So he was a wicked guy. And then he says he even made metal images for the bills, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So this guy is like legend when it comes to bad stuff. He's breaking God's law. He's such a prolific idolater that he's erecting statutes everywhere. He has like, imagine like calling your children, telling your wife, hey, so this is our second son. We're killing him tomorrow night. <laughs> that is the kind of twisted mind that he has. And then he's also sacrificing everywhere. And you can imagine the implications of this for the kingdom of Judah. Some of you might remember um, when, when and how Adire and Ankara made a comeback. In the early 2000s, shortly after the return to democratic rule, you may remember that Baba, President Obasanjo, used to wear Adire and Ankara like, pretty much everywhere he was going. And that was how Adira and Ankara moved from something that was really for people at the lower class to something that even the rich in society were wearing. And so it made a comeback. It became a cultural statement. And so you can imagine where the king of the nation is actually the one who is sacrificing to idols. He's leading his people astray from God. And everybody is following him. And you can imagine a nation with the same frequency with which you are driving on the streets. You are seeing Redeemed Christian Church of God. Every corner, five minutes drive, you are seeing idol worship centers on the street like that. This was a country that had lost its path. And so this is the, this is the setting. This is what's going on. This is the context in which Isaiah is ministering. And then we are told in verse 1 that these two kings, the, the king of the northern kingdom, um, King Pekah, and the king of Aram, or king of Syria, king Rezin, come against Ahaz. And their aim in verse 6, we're told, is to decimate the kingdom of Judah, to destroy the house of David, and to install a puppet king. So how does Ahaz respond? Verse 2 is both one of the funniest and one of the most graphic verses in the Bible, because we're told... Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So this guy is scared to his pants. Like, 
he was literally peeing on himself. That's, that's, that's the implication here. But why? why? Why is he scared? Well, again, the answer is in 2 Chronicles 28. So it turns out that these two kings had attacked Judah before. And when they attacked Judah, they killed 120,000 soldiers, and they took captive 200,000 wives and children. In fact, they took, and, and so they took them captive, and they were taking them into the land, into the 10 northern kingdoms, and it took some righteous people to actually stand up and say, no, 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 these guys are brothers and sisters. We cannot take captive our same blood, people of God, and make them work for us in servitude. And so you can imagine the economic collapse that had already happened before because of these two kings. And so when Ahaz hears again that these guys have surrounded our borders, these guys have come to decimate us, the guy is visibly shaken. This is not a mere harassment. This is not an area boy who is shouting, hey, hey, on the road. This is the potential end of the kingdom of Judah. And so you can imagine why this guy is scared. And some of you know how this feels. Maybe you're a lady and you've heard stories about a particular street in front of your office where people have been kidnapped and raped. You've heard those stories. But it's like, ah, oh, sad, such a bad life. And then one day you happen to be the person who actually has to work late. And you know all those streets, if you are walking somewhere like Lagos Island, where is only one street like that is working at night. And then you have to park at TBS, and your office is somewhere on, on NCR building or on Coco, Coco what's, what's that building again? I don't, those, those buildings, Sha. And you have to park several meters away from where you work. And then you decide, huh, I've had a long day, it's 10 p.m., let me just stroll to the car and get going home. And as you are walking down with your high heels, which you've You've pulled off at this point your hand and your bag and you're strolling down. You start hearing footsteps behind you. And then you turn back and you see a guy in black. <laughs> you're not going to find out, are you a police officer? Are you a... You're just running. Or some of us know what it means to be attacked by robbers. I remember in my second year of university, I was living on campus when I received a phone call from from an uncle. You know how all these things happen. Your parents are trying to keep the secret from you. And then somebody calls, and, hey, what happened? I'm like, what happened? Like, how? And so that was how I heard. My parents had been robbed the previous night. They were manhandled. A car they had just bought, like, was really, at the time, the economy was doing well. So people were buying Tokumbo cars, like, no, man, no man's business. It was a late model car. The car they had just bought, like, some months before was stolen from them. And then my friends, how did they respond? God saved them. There were lots of ladies in the house. No one was raped. I was like, oh my God, like all these guys, would they rape these ladies? Thankfully, nothing like that happened. So what did they do? They beeped up security. Started having CCTV. We started having different things. We started employing more um, security men. We, we had, they, they built, they extended the security building so that from, you could now climb up and see what was happening. And so everything was going on fine until one day, like a few months after, they all traveled. My sister went back to her campus, and I was the only one at home. 
And then I was going to church, driving to church this Sunday morning, and just at this junction of our street, three guys just accosted me. And one of them made as if he was going to put his hand into the car to open the door. I just drove off. I just zoomed. But that night, I made sure. <laughs> I did not park that car at home. I went back home. Some of you say, why did you even go back home? I went back home. I slept in the house. My parents came back. What happened? Right then I told them. Thankfully, nothing happened. We weren't robbed again. But just the threat, the possibility that we could have been robbed again was enough. And this is something of what Ahaz is feeling here. This is not, a, as bad as it is, this is not somebody trying to rape Ahaz. As bad as it is, this is not armed robbers trying to steal stuff, some treasures from the king's house. This is the potential end of the kingdom. It's a visible threat. It's palpable fear and tension. But then what happens? How does God respond? We see here that God actually knows and God responds. And friends, if you are here like that, you are, having, you are in a position where there's just a visible threat to your life, to your existence. There's a palpable fear that envelopes you and surrounds you. God knows. You see in verse 3, it says, God said to Isaiah. Ahaz didn't go to ask God, like, God, what should we do? It was God coming to him. In his kindness, in his goodness, in his sovereignty, God comes to Ahaz. And friends, this is what God is doing this morning as well. That in spite of the visible threat that surrounds you, in spite of the potential end of your kingdom as it may appear, God is coming to you. He knows he's responding and he cares about you. And so God says to him in verses 3 to 4, God sends Isaiah and his son, Shejashub, to Ahaz. He says, keep calm and don't be afraid. Can we say it together? Keep calm and don't be afraid. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Have you seen one of those keep calm t-shirts before? Keep calm and don't be afraid. And maybe Isaiah is even wearing one to the palace as he's going to deliver God's message. Keep calm and don't be afraid. And then not even just that, God calls these two kings two smoldering stubs of firewood. And the picture here is of firewood. Some of you know what an alase is. Or some of you from very big Places like Ijebode, where they do yeah. lots of parties. Yeah. And they use firewood to cook. <laughs> it, took, it took him a while. It took him a while. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> the, the, the stick has burnt out. The, the thing has generated heat. It has been consumed. And at that point, it's useless. It's good for nothing. And if, even if you choose to beat someone with it, what happens? It breaks. It becomes ashes. And God is saying to, to Ahaz, these guys are nothing but useless firewood. And you can imagine how Ahaz is thinking at this point. I'm sure he's probably thinking Isaiah is unwell. Because he's probably thinking in his mind, these guys have come before. 
they've, they've killed 120,000 soldiers. They've taken captive 200,000 women. And you are here telling me to keep calm. Keep calm. How? That they are firewood. But he doesn't say anything. But God is not done yet because we see two things following in the text. In verse 9, God says to Ahaz, stand firm in your faith. And the picture here is as though God is saying, don't believe the hype. Don't believe how potentially dangerous these armies seem. Don't believe how it looks like these guys are going to overpower you and decimate you. Trust me. And then in verse 10, God, as if to give Ahaz an opportunity, says, Ahaz, you ask him for a sign. And how does Ahaz respond? In verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the law to the test. Now, when Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the law to the test, he's not, he's not a statement of faith. It's actually a statement of unbelief. We know it is unbelief because it is God that is asking him to ask him for a sign. But yet, Ahaz says, no, I, I won't put the law to the test. And you see the way Ahaz does it. He does it in a very spiritual and religious manner. He's quoting the Bible back to God. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, God says to the children of Israel, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And here says, ah, no, 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 no. It's not even just that God cannot do it. I'm going to speak God's words back to him. And you see, the tragedy of this is that Ahaz believes more these two kings and their potential plans for him than he trusts God. And friends, aren't many of us like this? Aren't many of us doubting God's goodness, God's power, God's omnipotence to intervene in the circumstances and situations of our life? You see, for, all of, for many of us, it's not a, it's not a military or, potential or political decimation that we face. But could it be economic? Could it be that your business is now struggling and things are hard and money is scarce? And it looks as though the potential and very visible threats of poverty is staring you in the face. Or could yours be that despite your good-naturedness and how much you care about God and your very good skills and your, you keep advancing in age and you are yet to marry, and the very visible threat of singleness and loneliness all your life is staring you in the face. Or could it be that you are facing really bad health challenges? And it seems like the very visible threat of ill health and suboptimal health all your life long is staring you in the face. And rather than trust the goodness and kindness of God, because you have been disappointed again and again and again and again, you don't believe God. And then you're even veiling your doubts of God's power in very Christian lingo. God is sovereign. God is able. You know all those Christian terms that we use that we really don't, that we're really just covering our lack of trust in God. God can do anything he wants. God's word comes to you this morning. God says to Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Stand firm in your faith. 
And if I can just say to you this morning, regardless of how visible this threat looks to you, regardless of how very palpable the end looks to you, can you just trust God? Can you just believe God? He says to Ahaz in verses 3 to 4, keep calm. Don't lose heart. Don't be afraid. And that's his word to you this morning. Keep calm. Regardless of what you're facing, keep calm. Regardless of the difficulty, keep calm. Regardless of how very much it looks like everything is coming to an end, keep calm. Don't be afraid. Stand firm in your faith. And this leads me to the second thing we see in this text, a visible sign. And so God asks Ahaz to ask him for a sign. Well, Ahaz doesn't believe God. And you know how we give dismissive answers to people. Myself and my wife were really good at this. Maybe I'm watching Netflix and she's asking me for something. Just as it, and she's talking about, mm, mm-hmm, mm. And then she does the same to me too as well. And some of us are like that to God. And that's what Ahaz is actually doing here. God says to him, ask me for a sign. He quotes the Bible back to God as though, like, guy, just, just go. Just go, I beg. I want to continue with military strategy. But how does God respond? Does God walk away? Does God give up? Does God leave Ahaz to his own faith and say, I asked you to ask me for a sign. You didn't trust me. You didn't believe me. So I'm going to leave you to it. Does God even kill Ahaz? No. He doesn't. God, who doesn't need to prove a point to Ahaz, descends to Ahaz's level and basically says, okay, you don't believe me. I'm going to give you a sign nonetheless. And let's just think about that. The sovereign God, the God of the universe, the God who doesn't need to prove a point, the God who has never owed anyone anything, the God who has never asked or begged for help from anyone, the God who Ahaz didn't even ask him for help, came to Ahaz. And Ahaz doubted God, and God still says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And friends, this is the amazing fatherly love of God that he keeps coming to us even when we don't believe him, even when we don't trust in him, even when we don't have the littlest iota of confidence in his ability. He comes to us and says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And so what does God say? In verses 14 to 16, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. God says to Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And the sign I'm going to give is one that is is such that the kingdom of Judah will remain intact. Nothing is going to happen through these guys. But this sign is that a son will be born. And at this time, if if Ahaz was doubting Isaiah's stability before, at this point, he's now very sure of it. I'm asking for military victory, and you're telling me about childbirth. Are you nuts? That's what the guy is probably thinking in his mind. And so Ahaz remains unbelieving still. Ahaz remains uncommitted to God. But God is committed nonetheless. And God is committed to you nonetheless, regardless of your unbelief in him. 
And now, so what's, what's God getting at here? Who is this virgin? Who is this son? Is this Jesus? Is this Hezekiah? Is this Isaiah's son? The guy with the longest name in the Bible. Mahashalal Hashbaz. Now, I said this passage is a difficult passage precisely because of these two verses, of these three verses that we're going to consider now, verses 14 to 16. But I think we can know its meaning. And so we're going to have another. So we had a history lesson before. Now we're going to have a five-minute theology day class in Bible interpretation. All right? So what does prophecy mean? Let's, let's, or how do we interpret prophecy? How does prophecy work? Now, before we, before we look at this, um, there, are about, there are different categories of prophecy in the Bible. So there's prophecy as singing. So if you look at First Chronicles 20-something, I can't quite remember. The Bible talks about the, 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 the Levites that David appointed who were prophesying by singing. There's also prophecy as giving praise. So in the book of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends upon, upon, the, the, apostles, upon the apostles, the 120 in the upper room, one of the things that records there is that they were declaring the mighty acts of God. And when Peter is interpreting or he's telling people what has happened, he quotes Joel chapter 2. And what Joel chapter 2 says, in the last days, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So there's prophecy as declaring the wonders of God, declaring the mighty acts of God. But there's also prophecy as the writing of scripture. So for instance, in Revelation, um, John, the, 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 one of the angels says to John that, write down the words of this prophecy. And so that he's talking about the scripture, the revelation that God is giving him at that point in time. But there's also prophecy, the one which is probably the most popular category, prophecy as prediction of future events. And this is what's happening here. And so that's, when I say how does prophecy work, that's really what I'm talking about. How does predictive prophecy work? How does prophecy that predicts future events, how does it work? And one category is what I call single future. So this is just me. If it's wrong, if it doesn't help you, just discard it. This is called single future. And so what, does single, what do I mean by single future? It's when a predictive word of prophecy comes that is really about one specific event. So for example, in Genesis 15, 13 to 14, God makes a covenant with um, Abraham. And he says, in, in when, when he's given the covenant to Abraham, he says that your descendants will be in the land in a foreign land for 400 years, they'll be made slaves. We all know that that's the children of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 12, when Moses is writing down all the things that have happened, he said that the children of Israel were in, that, were in the land of Israel. God had delivered them after 430 years. When Stephen is speaking about that event in the book of Acts chapter 7, he says, he quotes back what God said to Abraham. He says, this is what God said, that they will be in, the, in a foreign land for 400 years. Another example, some of us remember when Dami was talking to us from the um, Love Lagos series, he quotes um, second, um, Jeremiah chapter 28, where Jeremiah gives a prophecy and actually says, in two years, this guy will die. And in two years, that was what happened. So there's single future category. But then there's what, secondly, I call double future. Very clever. Double future. So double future is where there's a specific, so both events are actually predictive of future occurrences. But, but it, it, it means, 
or it has more than just one event in mind. So, so a good example is 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes a covenant again with David, and he says to David, um, I will build a house for you. He says, your son will build a house. I will love him. I will take care of him. And then he says about this son that his kingdom will never end. Now, we know that the fulfillment of that statement was that Solomon was the one who built the temple for God. But as I said just now, and as we follow the Bible story, we see that the Davidic kingdom actually comes to an end. So what does God mean? Does it mean that there is one son whose kingdom will never end? Or does it mean that there will be a son who will never die? Or does it mean that there's, a, there's going to be a son who will live? Yeah, there's, yeah. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> Who will live forever? Nah, listen, he doesn't die. Doesn't. Anyway, the, the lineage continues. All right, so we find actually that so on one level, Solomon is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Solomon builds the temple. But on another level, Solomon and the descendants of David in flesh are not the fulfillment of that prophecy because the Davidic line actually comes to an end. So who then is the fulfillment of that prophecy? The answer is Jesus. Because by the time you read the Bible, in fact, Matthew makes this a big point in his gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, the, the first chapter is really about tracing the line of Jesus. And we see that he connects, is what sometimes theologians call the royal line of Jesus. And so he connects all the Davidic kings, and then he keeps tracing it down until we see that Jesus is in line of the Davidic kings. And then by the time we get to Matthew chapter 20, Jesus actually talks about his kingdom never ending and the gospel going throughout the ends of the world. So on one, in one hand, Solomon is the fulfillment of that prophecy, but Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. All right, so there's single future, double future. All right, thanks. So let's take that off. So what's going on here? Let's come back. So the first thing to note is that when he says virgin, when, when Isaiah says virgin, he's not necessarily talking about pregnancy without sex. He's not necessarily saying that this person is going to give birth without sex. He's just basically saying at this particular point in time, this person is young and is an unmarried woman. Okay? So who then is Emmanuel? Now, some have said, yeah, I'm Emmanuel. <laughs> who then is Emmanuel? Now, up until... Two weeks ago, I used to think Emmanuel was Hezekiah. Hezekiah because Hezekiah is Ahaz's son, and Hezekiah is in the Davidic line, and this is actually a prophecy to the house of David. But as I looked at it very closely, and I, Hezekiah is not Emmanuel. Because if you read the biblical text, you see that actually by the time Hezekiah, by, if you calculate well, you see that Hezekiah is at least nine years old at the time this prophecy is being given. So he is, not, he is not Hezekiah. Also, 2 Kings chapter 18 tells us that it is during the fourth year of the reign of Hezekiah that the land of Israel, the ten other kingdoms, are annexed and they are taken away. So Hezekiah is definitely not this Emmanuel. But then is he also Isaiah's son? We see in chapter 8, and the reason why sometimes people think um, this Emmanuel is Isaiah's son is because in chapter 8, the same words give birth to a son is repeated there. The same words, I will give you a sign. God says to Isaiah that your children are for signs. So it's Isaiah's children, all right? But your children are also for signs and wonders. <laughs> but kind of. 
But, <laughs> but so that, that's why also you, sometimes people say, okay, this, this Isaiah son is, is the sign. But if you look at it very carefully, it's not. Because in, in the original rendering of the, of the Hebrew text, in chapter 7, it's the virgin who names the child. Whereas in chapter 8, it is Isaiah who names his son. All right, so it's not Isaiah. So uh, Isaiah's son. So who then is Emmanuel? Yes. So who then, I'll, I'll, I'll say it later. So who then is Emmanuel? What does this prophecy mean? On one level, we don't know. We don't know because the Bible doesn't give us much detail. And yet when we read in verses 14 to 16, we see that it is a very specific child whose birth is tied to the destruction of these two kingdoms. And so God is basically saying to Ahaz, of course, if we don't know, Ahaz definitely knows and Isaiah knows, right? And God is basically saying to Ahaz, this child is a sign to you. And what does the name Emmanuel mean? We all know it. God with us. And God is basically saying to Ahaz and to Judah that he's with them. You guys are not neglected in this difficult circumstance that you are going through. You guys are not forsaken as hard as things look. You guys are not forsaken, even though you are surrounded all around by these two dangerous kings. I am with you. God is with you. But does Ahaz listen to God? Does he then at this point turn around and say, wow, God is for us. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey God. <laughs> no, he doesn't. We know he doesn't because in 2 Kings 16, 7 to 10, we are told that Ahaz actually sends messengers to the king of Assyria, the superpower at the time, the world power at the time, and goes to ask him, save me from these two kings. And then the king of Assyria actually helps him. And he saves him from these two kings. But rather than, again at that point, turning back to follow God, Ahaz actually descends further into idolatry. And you see in chapter 16, verse 10, Ahaz goes to thank this guy in, in, in verse 10. He goes to thank the king of Assyria for helping him. And what does he do? He sees an altar made to an idol there, and he says, wow, look at this altar. Let's import it back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine the effrontery? God has just saved you from a great military victory. And you see an altar made to an idol in another kingdom, and you import it back. He actually sends the prototype and the design to the priest. Design this for us. So Kumbo is imported. So Ahaz carries on in unbelief, doubting God, actually going very deliberately against God, despite God's visible sign. He believes the visible threat over God's visible son. And at this point, we are pretty sure that God is actually at this time now going to walk away from Judah. You guys are useless. You guys are a, a, a thankless bunch. I give up on you. But does he? No, he doesn't. Because as we read on, this Emmanuel theme actually keeps resurfacing in the book of Isaiah and the prophets. In chapter 8, verse 10, God says to the nations, devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. Why? Because God is for us. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, a popular passage that we all know, God promises the birth of a child whose government will be without end. It will not be, the, the kings of this world, the, 
the kings of Aram of this world, the kings of, of Ephraim of this world cannot stand against it. He says the government will be on his shoulders and his reign will be without end. In chapter 11, verse 1, we are told of a shoot that will actually come out of Jesse and out of the branch of David. And in Zechariah 8, verse 23, God says, In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you because we have heard that what God is with you. And God doesn't give up. And as we read the Bible, we read the text, God does not give up on his people. They walk away from God. The Davidic kingdom actually comes to an end. They are taken into exile. And yet God does not give up on his people. So remember what we talked about, double future. This actually is a double future prophecy. Because about 600 years after the events of this chapter, there is another virgin who gives birth to another sign child. And this virgin is not someone who conceives with, with human procreation, human intervention. This is one who conceives by divine intervention. This child that she gives birth to is born and is named Jesus. And when Matthew is recording the story of Jesus' birth, in Matthew chapter, chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God sends Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment, as the true son, the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7 verse 14. And friends, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate a God who has love and mercy <coughs> for doubting Ahaz's like you and I. We celebrate a, word who, a God who keeps his word. We celebrate a God who does not treat us according to what we deserve, but extends grace to us even when we don't deserve it. We celebrate a God who, like Ahaz, we don't call him into our mess, but he comes anyway into our mess. We celebrate a God who does not merely want to be around us, who doesn't want merely to be near us, but we celebrate a God who is with us. And friends, this is the hope of Christmas. God has come to be with doubters like you and I. And like Ahaz this morning, his word to us is that his presence is more real than any circumstance, any difficulty, any challenge, any visible threat that we face. His presence is truer. His presence is stronger. His presence is closer than anything you might be experiencing in your life right now. How do you know that you will go through, that you can go through the visible threat that you're facing, the visible threat of lack, the visible threat of living all your life unmarried, the visible threat of actually being married but having no kids, the visible threat of actually not prospering and thriving in your business like you think, the visible threat of being rejected by others, the visible threat of no one liking you or loving you, the visible threat of ill health. How do you know that you'll be able to go through it? This is God's promise to us this morning. God is with us. His presence is realer. His presence is truer. His presence is stronger than anything you are experiencing right now. So if you're not a Christian here today, 
Can I ask you to put your faith in this Christ? Even though like Ahaz, you're not trusting in him, you don't believe in him, you've heard all this stuff that all these Christians say, but their life doesn't live up according to the Christ that, that they profess, and so you think, I don't want anything to do with it. He comes to you this morning, even though you're not inviting him into your mess, even though you're not inviting him into your story, he comes to you this morning and says, I am with you. And that promise, this promise can be true for you this morning. Or maybe you're a Christian and you actually believe, you say you believe in Christ, but because of the things you've experienced, sometimes because of the false promises that have been made to you by preachers and other Christians that, oh, no, just give this amount of money or just say these quiet words or just quote and recite these verses over your life every morning, things will be okay for you. But you have experienced rejection upon rejection. You have experienced disappointment upon disappointment. God says to you, He is with you. He has given you friends. God has given us the greatest sign we ever need. God doesn't need to give us another sign again. He has given us the greatest sign we ever need. He has given us the true son. And this son is not just a son that was procreated or made, conceived by human imagination. This is God himself clothed in flesh, becoming like one of us. And he doesn't just drop from the sky with halo around his head, descending and say, oh, this is me. He comes like a baby, like a child. He becomes one of us who actually knows what it means to be disappointed. He becomes like one of us who actually knows what it means to be rejected. He becomes like one of us who actually knows what it means to experience pain and hardship all of our lives. He becomes like one of us so that we can say, God is with me. And I love so much how Paul closes this in Romans 8.32. And you can bank on this. You can take this to the bank tomorrow morning. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely along with him, give us all things. And see the church, this is the promise this morning. He has given you his son and he will withhold nothing from you. This is the greatest sign we ever need. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.